Hello and welcome again to what will be our first second lesson in the fall quarter, but the first uh, that we're going with the uh, Genesis passage. So, yeah. and I'm excited about it because I don't think we've done Noah's Ark. Um, no, I don't think we have. No. In the past couple of years, anyway, four or five years. And I think our writer, who um, is very young, this is the youngest writer I think that we've had for the encounter. And so Caleb Norris from the Reverend Caleb Norris, I think he's at Cookville, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I think you are correct. Um, yeah. And who just recently got married. Yay! Uh, Congratulations, yeah, so, Caleb. And, and I think he finished his encounter lessons on his honeymoon. So <laughs> that is dedication, my friend. Dedication. That's right. That's all I'm going to say. But so um, I so I'm appreciative. Uh, Caleb did a really good job on these, and so I uh, can't wait to get in and and look through them again. The background: October the fourth, day in the park. We really yep. look forward to having you. Um, historical foundation. Good preaching, good worship. Everybody's uh, welcome. You can try if you'd like to make a couple days out of it. You could uh, call up Montgomery Bell State Park, see if they've got some. I know all the cabins are rented out, but they might have some room at the end, uh, hopefully. Oh, yeah, what a good what I did there. I did. That was awesome. <laughs> Never too early to think about Advent. Uh, so, all right. Um, so that's what I've got. Uh, Reverend, yeah. would you like to share? Oh, my name is Chris Fleming. I'm the adult ministry yeah. coordinator with the Ministry Council of the Carmel Presbyterian Church and my co-host. I am Reverend Becky Zardi. I'm the Director of Ministry with Women for the Ministry Council for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and thank you for joining us today. Make sure you hit those like and subscribe buttons below and share this with your friends, and most importantly, share it with your enemies. Let them know that Jesus loves them too. Amen. We have uh, got um, just a quick update on Woosley Women. If you're not following us on Instagram, we are still looking for nominees for our Woosley Woman Wednesday. You can send us a photo and a 250-word biography of any woman in your church and let us recognize her and the accomplishments she has made there in your local congregation. That would be great. And you can email those to me at rzardi at cumberland.org. I think, you know what? I might make a submission. Please do. That I would think be fantastic. You have a beautiful wife. Well, yeah, my wife. A lot for the church that should you be can. recognized. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'll work on that. Okay, good. Thank you. So our scripture passage is going to cover Genesis chapter six, uh, but in our um, printed text, it's Genesis six, 16 through 22, and then also nine, eight through 15. So if you're mm -hmm. preparing this for your class, really, we're doing the whole flood narrative. Uh, but yep. these are what we've got uh, in here. So let me um, pray our prayer for illumination. Mm -hmm. Lord, help us to see the wisdom of Noah, who lived by faith, not knowing what would happen, but obeying your commands. Give us a heart to love your words and follow your commandments. Amen. And oh, then man. our memory verse from Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Um, and I think just at the get-go, if you look through our scripture selection, I just underlined, I didn't, I didn't really check it real hard, but either um, you talk about, or God talks about establishing a covenant. Um, Noah did all that God commanded. In verse eight of nine, it says, I'm establishing my covenant. Um, verse 12, the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, the covenant. Anyway, this story is about God's care and preservation of the covenant began with really Adam and Eve, right. but 
with Abraham now through Noah. And mm-hmm. then in all these stories, it's also this obedience to the, to the covenant, right? Or the, the, so it's God's love of the covenant and then our responsibility and our love for the covenant. Uh, right. So our, anyway. our upholding our end of the bargain. And that yeah. becomes important because really what, from Noah's point of view, the thing that we, uh, I think the thing that is most striking is this radical obedience of Noah. Yes. Uh, in a world that is off track. Completely disobedient. Yes. So, yeah. so that's by way of introduction. Now we'll start the yeah. introduction. Okay. So Reverend, what initial yeah. thoughts come to mind when you hear the words Noah's Ark? Of course, the nursery scenes. I mean, yeah. how many of us have not had a Noah's Ark nursery scene? I mean, it's just, I think about all the classrooms that I have been in with small children and in and and church and the people that I know that we have those little cute Noah's Ark little boats and there's always the two little giraffes that are sticking their heads yeah. through the top window, you know, and then the elephant's trunk that's hanging off the front end of the boat. And it's just, it's always cute and adorable and just something that just you want to share with your children. Um, because animals are cute because animals are cute but then i grew up and i'm with i'm with caleb on this uh this introduction i i really am feeling this there was a film um several years ago i think it was russell crowe that that um starred in this film and it was called i think it was called noah's ark or the i think it was just called noah was it noah um and that totally turned how I viewed Noah's Ark on, on, on its head. I mean, I just, I had not, I don't think I'd ever looked at it from that perspective before. Well, there was certainly wickedness and we don't put that part of the story in the nursery rhymes for sure. No. I mean, why would you want to tell your two-year-old about that? Well, you know, I'm cynical, but (laughs) the Lord blessed the next generation that I didn't have little children of my own. I didn't yes. come along until my children were, you know, 10, 12. Thank goodness. So that they could understand your cynicism and, right. and, and deal with it better than a two-year-old would. Okay. Yes. God so, is very wise. I think I would answer the same thing. <laughs> Nursery stuff. I mean, just statues, you know, whatever. Like, I think what I really enjoy though, is like uh, when I go to churches and they have like the Noah's Ark playground. I mean, I love it. Oh yeah, fun. that's true. I didn't it's think really about fun. that, but that's true. But it is uh, kind of fun playing on a big boat. It is. It's very fun. You know? Yeah. All right. So um, in that opening paragraph, I mean, I like this. Uh, with that being said, how much worse would we need to be in our generation for God to see the earth as corrupt? I don't know. I think every single generation there's been like, you know, grandma and grandpa sitting on the porch saying, world's going to on a handbasket, right? Like, yeah. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. thinks every generation is like terrible. The worse uh, and worse and worse. Yeah. But it could be. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're wrong. Maybe I it mean, is, you know, I mean, I think about my elementary school days, we were told we were a terrible class. We were told by our teachers at parent teacher conference, my parents were told all the time that our class was the worst class that ever came through that school. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. And I, I think there's some just a natural thing that we think that, but I mean, I I think at least in the way the context of this story is you have Genesis chapter three, where things go awry with Adam and Eve. And then actually the point of the story is, you know, through the tower of Babel and through everything else, it just sin is terrible. 
that's what yeah, we get. And it's, it creates a downward, a downward, downward spiral. spiral, you know, I mean, it just, it started there and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Right. And so that, I think that's the point of the text after Genesis three, the point of the text is God has created this beautiful thing. Sin enters the world, take sin real serious because sin will tear up your life. It tears up the yeah. world. It tears up everything. And then we get to this point here to where it's serious, serious. Like yeah. there's not like the nod of the head, wink of the eye, things can continue. It's gotten really, really bad. Yeah. Um, so then Caleb brings up these questions. Did God really need to drown all life on earth except for Noah's family and two of each animal? Right. Couldn't God have found a more peaceful way to restore order, harmony, and creation? Maybe. I don't know. We're not God. Um, right. But initially, what do you think about those questions? I, I, I think I've struggled with those questions as a Christian, you know, especially just trying to understand the whole, I think the whole judgment context um, through the Bible that we, that, that is very prevalent, that God continues to judge humanity and judge our actions and who we are as people. And just, um, I think I've struggled with that. You know, yeah. was there a different way that God could have gone versus destroying everything? But then I, I go back to, he is the potter and we are the clay. And do I really have a right to question that? I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Um, I do like at the very bottom of that section, um, I'll just read it because I think he did a really good job. Mm -hmm. uh, Caleb writes, upon first glance, the God of the flood narrative may not resemble the God of grace we've come to know through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but perhaps looks can be deceiving. And I think that's an important thing um, yeah. as we go on, because um, no, anyway, anything else on that section? And then we can. I don't think so, because we're yeah. going to get into some pretty deep questions when we when we move forward. So the uh, historical and contextual setting, the one thing that I, I want to just kind of bring out would be, um, so there's a flood narrative in almost every culture yes, from around this time. Um, and y'all probably picked up, I've said this before, I teach a world religions class at the at the college here, the little local community college. And, and I've ended up having to study a lot of different things. And it is amazing to see that most civilizations that were advanced enough to write and and to record history, they have flood myths. American Native American Indians, uh, the Gilgam yes. Gilgamesh, I think is the name of the story, the Hebrew story. But anyway, they're they're everywhere. So there was this massive flood event at some point in time. At some point, yes. That everybody kind of experienced. I, I can't say that it was this one event, or we could say this: every culture experienced a devastating flood at some point, right? Um, and the reason that's important uh, is, number one, we receive the, the way the community thought about it through these mm -hmm. uh, myths, if you want to call them myths. When I use the term myth, I don't mean falsity or made-up story. I mean interpretive story. So what I would like to say when you're talking about Noah's flood or the flood, it would be these are people who are choosing to look at an event theologically they're trying to figure out from god's point of view or from a theological point of view what happened right why yeah which what is different than like reading your local newspaper about the tornado in mayfield sure, right sure. 
Um, so that's the context, I think, of what we're, we got here with the flood. And I think that's important that every culture had their own take and their own understanding, understanding. of how it happened. Now, mm -hmm. as Christians, we believe that the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures are revealed. And mm -hmm. so what we're reading then is uh, affirmed, uh, we'll say theology or an affirmed interpretation of, of the flood. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I think it goes back to the fact that it's it's actually about God's recreation and God's grace as much, at least as much as it is punishment and judgment. Sure. You know, and maybe that's something that we need to to focus on for a moment with God's recreation through grace. Because he chose one family to continue humanity through. And honestly, he didn't have to. He did not have to. He could have just stopped everything and started over with something completely different. But why did but, he not, you think? Right. I think that's where the grace comes in. I think God has always, I mean, if you look back at the Genesis, beginning of Genesis with Adam and Eve, God longs for communion with his creation. I mean, that, that was the intention of having Adam and Eve in the garden is, is that we were supposed to be co-creators with God, that he placed Adam and Eve in this garden to help develop and help flourish and continue our creation. And then sin entered the world and things got really bad, but God is choosing here at this moment to take the chaos, you know, cause from the beginning, God is always creating order from chaos. Yeah. There's, a, there's always this trying to make something good out of this chaotic thing. And so here you have God taking the chaos that has become now humanity and all the terrible things that we were doing, the depravity that was, that was prevalent and trying to start again with this devout believer and his family, right. trying to start this creation over, say, okay, y'all have gone the wrong direction. <laughs> this is not the way we need to go. And I think that is kind of, that is mercy and that is grace being shown by God that he didn't just say, okay, humanity was a big mistake. Let's try right. something different. The other thing that it does, it reminds, it should remind us of the faithfulness of God to the covenant. Mm -hmm. Like God is, has still covenanted with Adam and Eve, uh, yeah. Genesis three fifteen or whatever, where we have this threat of redemption. This, so, um, you know, God certainly didn't promise that, like, um, everything was going to be hunky-dory. Even in Genesis 3.15, it says the serpent mm -hmm. will strike his heel, right? Mm -hmm. And and the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So there's still, there's going to be this, that's what we're highlighting, is that God mm -hmm. is, God hasn't promised endless bliss. He, right, but, but he is faithful to, to bring, his promises. Right. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's kind and, of important. And then with the Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, it was, he promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars right. in the sky. So he is continuing again, to be faithful to the covenant that he made, to the promise that he made, right. regardless of how terrible we've been at not keeping our end of the bargain. God has always kept his end. That's the way that works. So, mm -hmm. um, 
then so we move on to like page 10 where i think it's good for us to understand too like uh caleb brings up the fact that like this was only 10 generations again we'll say people lived hundreds of years but what you see again is this just descent into evil um and so god has gone that first paragraph on page 10 god has gone from seeing the created earth as good to seeing that the earth is corrupt and filled with violence that's genesis well, 6 11 10 generations yeah. I mean, good grief um so then anyway i want to bring up this uh discussion question i think that'll mm -hmm. help us what are the ethical implications of God's decisions to flood the earth because of humanity's wickedness? In your opinion, do the ends justify the means? Does God know the outcome of all things before they occur? If so, why? Does God experience regret upon certain outcomes? If not, how does God exist in an eternal, quote-unquote, or parentheses, completely outside of the time capacity? That's a lot there. That um, is a lot. So if you want to take a couple of those things... Um, and then we'll we'll keep rolling. Woo. Um, do the ends justify the means? You know, I think that always that has been a struggle my entire life. Do I think the ends justify the means from my perspective? Yes, because Christ came, you know, uh, we have become a people that have been invited into this beautiful relationship with God because of the redeeming acts that Christ did on the cross. So from my point in history, yes, I, I think they do. Now, those are some pretty deep questions though. Does God know the outcome of all things before they occur? Yes, but is maybe that's where the free will comes in is there are multiple possibilities of what outcome is actually going to occur because we have been given free will. And maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Those are really tough questions, Chris. What do you think? That well, it's really tough. I woke up on the Calvinist side of the bed this morning. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, here we go. Okay. Now, I, so we'll do that one second. So far as the ethical implications, I mean, like God is the def definer of ethical, right. first of all. So again, this is my reformed heritage coming out in me if the if god does it then the ends justify the means but again he's god is the one who will say this is ethical mm -hmm. this isn't ethical god is the yeah. one who understands all of it as we've learned from job or um so that's that's how i handle that and again people will take exception to that but i think just as i mean part of faith is the fact that you believe that god is the person god says he is and he's righteous and holy and so therefore yeah. if it's done it's a righteous and holy thing even if we can't understand it um does god know the outcome of all things before they occur again my reformed ish would be like absolutely like without much of a calm down dog um without much of a thought i mean does it present problems absolutely but so do a lot of things like god not knowing yeah. what's going to happen presents a lot of problems too yeah yes uh, yes so i would i would always say that yes how that works i don't know i'm joe with know. my hand on my mouth and i've said too much um i did want to bring up way to here, look at it that is a yes, good way to look at it if you're interested there is a 
I guess it, maybe 1980. I can't remember when it started, but uh, there's a movement within evangelical. I mean, it's not we're not going to it's not heretical or anything, but it's called open theism. Um, and so it's a subset kind of a reformed theology uh, where a guy named Ord and then a guy named Gregory Boyd uh, are kind of the two people that I know from it. Um, and it is a way of, of thinking about God in a more of an open universe that, yes, God is sovereign, but somehow open, almost like, um, I don't know how, the I, I can't really explain it too well. I don't agree with it, but it's a position that if a Sunday school teacher wants to dig in deeper, if you're just wanting to dig in deeper, just type in open theism in Google, uh, Gregory Boyd, like I said, or O-O-R-D, uh, and read some of the stuff. I mean, it attempts to stay faithful while also opening up the possibilities that um, free will has more meaning than what sometimes people see in Reformed theology. Hmm. Okay. Open How's theism. That? Check it out, Sunday school teachers. Yes. So that's that. Um, uh, goes on after that discussion question where Caleb writes, many readers mistakenly view God as a static rather than a dynamic character in the text. Many mm -hmm. also fail to remember the deep connections between the flood story and the creation story of Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah. Um, I'll bring that up because like I've said. It's all connected. It's all connected. Like God created perfection in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. It was ruined. Every single story, every single event is a in the rest of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament is a pointing back toward the Garden of Eden. Yes. So like we talked about how the temple was a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Yes. Um, Tabernacle even, first, then the yeah. temple. Right. Yeah. And it was all a reminder of, of the Garden of Eden. Of the garden. All the symbolism, the incense, the the fire, all pomegranates the the running around everywhere. Pomegranates. Yeah. The way you all of that was a hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. And then ultimately in Revelation 22 or 21, whatever it is, that's the picture of the Garden of Eden when, mm -hmm. when Christ establishes your consummates um, all things. So anyway, so what we see in this story is a recreation, like things mm -hmm. have gone bad, we're recreating. Uh, so you might want to take a look at that. Uh, anything there you want to talk about or I got one more uh, little point, but you've already said it. Did I already say it? I'm so sorry. Well, the, was, the, I, the bottom paragraph on page yeah. 10. I wanted to point out the emphasis on God's grief and pain, in addition to the literary connections to the creation narrative, should inform us as readers that the ancient biblical authors viewed the flood as a fundamental event in the story of God's relationship with humankind. And we talked about that, I think maybe in the beginning of this, um, exploring the scripture that we didn't really point out, but that this perspective, this story is, is looking from God's perspective right. of the sorrow and the pain and the upset that he has with his creation and just how much it has pained him to witness what, what happened, what we, what we did with this beautiful creation. And then we really, right. what we really messed it up. And so I think it's important because a lot of times we look at it from Noah's perspective and not recognize that we're really viewing this story from, from God's point of view, right. that this is, 
he is really sorry and he is really he is really hurt that his good creation has come to this point and then what i was going to point out in that vein was it's the uncreation and the recreation like god's always in the business of restoring you know order to chaos that's what god is in the business of um anything else on that section i don't think so that was was a good section digging deeper Mm. all right so again kayla brings up the fact that god uh, chooses to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life um yeah uh but second paragraph um it's crucial to remember that god's decision to remove the destructive agent within creation does not arise out of anger or hatred but out of grief and sorrow for the earth that's what we were just talking about yes um it's about the hurt god that endures um because of and for the sake of god's uh wayward creation Mm -hmm. um now that's where we kind of get a little bit into I mean, this is in some sense restorative justice. Yes. Right. So like justice is a key word um, in our our time today, and it can take on many meanings. I think what Caleb brings up here, I'm just going to read this uh, very bottom sentence of that third full paragraph. While natural disasters are never deserved by their victims, the biblical authors appear content with the assertion that humanity was guilty of an offense against creation and the flood was a necessary and just act of restoration. And like. It, it goes back to that uncreation and recreation. Yeah. And like, yeah. Um, I mean, justice means making things right. So if there was something mm-hmm. wrong, then then it's made right, which means yeah. some people will suffer. Um, yes. pro- hope, hopefully it's the people who have caused the issue will suffer. Um, and then because that would be justice. Uh, but ultimately the one who suffered the most or the, it was creation. And, and so um, the act of justice, how else does mother nature or creation, you know, what else how is, is it? How is it avenged? Yeah. Well, I, I think it goes back to, again, just the idea that because we have spiraled to such a, a horrible point and place in in time that God felt that this was necessary to bring the order back out of the chaos because we had descended so far into the chaos at this point in time that the only way to bring the order back that God had intended with the Garden of Eden is to have this flood and right. to start over with Noah and his family. Yeah, I mean, like we're it's easy for us to think about justice, especially in terms that's flowery. Sure. Um, but sure. if humanity was causing harm to creation, there was harm done. It wasn't as though like these were innocent people who were caught up in the flood. Mm-hmm. And how could God do that? That's mm-hmm. not the thing that's being presented. What's being presented is humanity was awful, not only to one another, but also to creation. Yes. And in some sense, which um, Caleb will talk about later, maybe I'll pick it up later, but in the way that humans treat creation, it is a very similar way in which we say, okay, the things that are important to God, we don't care, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, but we'll talk about that later in, in that. Yeah. But 
But I think that's where when we talk about justice, there's two sides of justice. Like it's a good thing to see justice. Right. But it's going to affect people. Yes, sure. Sure. I mean, like there are consequences. Yeah. Um, there are consequences to it. I do like then, how he brought up Matthew chapter yeah. eight, verse 27 and this whole section then too, because this is what they were really witnessing. And what we need to remember is because a lot of times I think we think God is just God of people and it's, and it's not, God is the God of everything. I mean, he, he is the creator of everything. And that's what the disciples were witnessing then with Jesus calming the storm is that he is in charge of and over all, including the, the natural world around us and the natural world obeyed Jesus when he put out his hand and, and calmed the storm. And what a, what a, what a sobering moment that had to be for the disciples, uh, to think, you know, they were following this man who had wonderful and amazing teachings and just authority. And they've watched him and witnessed him do amazing miracles. And then all of a sudden he calms the storm too. Wow. And here's the trick to that. Like we're in a biblically illiterate culture Mm -hmm. where we wouldn't be able to parallel some of our life events with biblical events. I guarantee you those 12 disciples that were in a boat that was about to capsize and drowned in water were thinking of Noah and the flood. Sure. Sure. And all of a sudden you hear, you see this illustration and demonstration of in the old Testament, God put this flood in, but now this, God who has command of all creation saves them by calming yes. them. So right. that's that's another difference is that that was probably deeply meaningful to them because they thought they were dead. Hebrews didn't like water to begin with because of things like Leviathan and and they just they were yeah they didn't like being in open sea all the time, especially with rough waters. But so this was basically again, if we knew our stories better, Peter. And the other apostles were like, this is God, right? This is an amazing thing where God once saved the world in a sense through a flood where everybody died. Now Christ is saving us and he has command over even the elements of nature. Which is amazing. And I, I agree, you know, as a pastor and as a Sunday school teacher, as, as you move forward, you have to consider who your audience is because there are so many times when as a pastor, when I preached a sermon, if I reference somebody like Noah or Job or any of the old Testament characters, I almost had to put in a synopsis of the story while I was referencing this person, because there are so many people that are listening to sermons that are trying to be a part of Sunday school and understanding the curriculum that have no point of reference. For these stories that so many of us grew up with learning, you know, the beautiful Noah's Ark story that as we got older, we went, oh my gosh, that's, that's not as cute as we thought it was. Um, and, and this is important as you explain things, because we do, we live in a, in a culture that you can't just reference. Oh, that sounds like Noah because people don't know. Yeah. Um, I think you wanted to bring up on page 11. We do need to say like, okay, so um bottom paragraph 
under mm -hmm. under that discussion question. I'm going to skip that yeah. discussion question because we talked about that in previous episodes, and y'all can do that. Um, uh, about middle of the paragraph, the rainbow is placed in the sky to symbolize God's covenant and lasting peace. Note that this covenant does not state that God um, chooses never to intervene in human history again. Rather, it states that God's intervention will never take the form of a natural disaster. Um, anyone shouting or testifying to tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, or signs of God's retribution should be reminded of this passage of Scripture. Um, I mean, later on, um, I would say it would be a natural disaster, you know, I, that happens through Scripture where mm -hmm. God intervenes. I can think off the top of my head, Paul and the earthquake and getting out of yep. jail. Um, so I think what I think what Scripture says there specifically is that God would never totally. Um, yeah, it, it will not be a worldwide natural disaster, I think, right. is what really Scripture is saying. Not that God won't use natural disasters to intervene in human history in specific locations, but that it would not be a worldwide event. And we've talked about that in encounters in the past uh, about how, you know, how we choose to see natural disasters. Yeah. Like they can be just, you know, dumb luck or natural processes, or it could be God. Like, right. that's where you got to be prayed up. And uh, yes, yes, yeah. I agree. Because not, I don't think all natural disasters all over the world are God's right. judgment and retribution for something. I think God can use them if needed, but some of it is literally just the natural world doing what it does. And then I will bring up this uh, page 12 to end that section. The climactic intervention was radically different from a destructive flood. It came in the form of a man born in Bethlehem, baptized in the Jordan, crucified at Golgotha, and raised from the tomb. Of course, yeah. obviously, our salvation comes from Christ, right? Yeah. And that's the ultimate, like the flood, and we'll talk about it briefly, I think, in this next section. But, I mean, it was a part, a defining event of the yeah. covenant. But ultimately, that covenant finds its full expression in Jesus Christ in the new. Yes. New, so. Which is an ultimate, I mean, if you think about it, that also is an uncreation and a recreation. Right. That is the, the uncreation of God here incarnate on earth, but a recreation of this new covenant that now we share with through the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, discuss this. Okay. What does God's decision to enter into a covenant with Noah and all Noah's descendants never again flood the earth say about God's character? And then does God change God's mind regarding God's plans or actions? I think what it says about this covenant is that God is always faithful to his words, yeah, that God's he always. will always uphold no matter what we do, that he will always uphold what he says he's going to do, that he is faithful in that. Um, so what it says about God's character is that God is a faithful, loving, and merciful God, because again, he didn't have to, he didn't have to continue on with, with humanity, but because he made a covenant promise, he will remain faithful to those. Um, yeah, no shadow of turning as James says later. I mean, yeah. God is God. God is God. How about that second part? Does God change God's mind regarding God's plans or actions? No, I don't think so. I think God knows ultimately where he's going, maybe. 
Depends but, on the point of view. You know, mm-hmm. okay. So I that's one of those that I go back and forth with. Does because open Moses, theism. Uh, okay, but you know, I mean, we have stories of like Moses praying on the mountain where God was going to destroy all of Israelite, but Moses prayed and prayed and prayed and said, you know, hey, look at this, and God said, okay, well, I'm not going to. I mean, well, and Abraham and Lot even, you know, he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham said, but what if you find 50 righteous or 40 or 30 or 20? What about five, just five righteous? And Lot and his wife and daughters were able to escape at least, you know, Lot's wife didn't make it very far, but. Yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. Like, I mean, it actually specifically says more than once in scripture that God repented yeah. of something, which like the classic definition of repented changed is mind. change mind. Yeah. Um, but again, I think uh, that's where Joel or not Joel, but Job helps us. Mm-hmm. Like we get a picture, an incomplete picture. Also, God has to, in Scripture, reveal information to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that we could handle the whole thing. And so no. you use words. Yeah. To, I mean, you know, God's God. That's where I go from. Yeah. But like to understand the process, you have to use our vocabulary that we know as human beings. You have to use the processes that we know as human beings. And so when God repents, for us, God says, I'm not going to do this again. Yeah. All right. Anything else on that scripture there? No, I think that was awesome. Well, let's learn from the scripture then. Let's learn. What you got? Okay. So I I am an environmentalist at heart. I, I hate to say this. So I love that Caleb put in here that God did not give the earth to us that we might exploit, pollute, and abuse it. And I totally agree with this. He says for far too long, humans have viewed the earth first and foremost as an infinite source of economic opportunity rather than a finite and delicate ecosystem upon which we are fundamentally dependent. We were always meant to be co-creators with God, caretaking and being good stewards of what God has given us. And I think especially in the Western cultures where we are economically advantaged compared to most other cultures, we take for granted that what we have is a very finite resource, that, that it is not an infinite resource. Um, there is a great film that we're going to put in um the email with the information that's going to come out from this it's called uh, minimalism and for me i think i've talked about it before on on this um some of our encounter stuff for me it wasn't necessarily about the things although god has really spoke to me especially in this last move about my possessions um but it was more about understanding that my job still is to be a good steward of what god has given me that whether it's my books or my home or my car, my financial resources, but also my time, my talents, um, that I'm supposed to be a good steward of all the things that God has gifted me with. And how many times do we, you know, one of the things that he talked to me about with this last move Um, one of the things that I had to give up was my grandmother's sewing machine cabinet. It was the same sewing machine cabinet that I sat and learned how to sew with my grandmother. And I really complained to God about having to give up this cabinet because it just, it meant a lot to me. 
and he really spoke to my heart and he said, but putting it in a basement and letting it gather dust for five years was not being a good steward of what I blessed you with. Okay. Gotcha. You're right. No. Yeah. That hurt. That hurt, but that's true. You know, when we just put things in a closet to never look at them again, because we might use them someday, or we might need it perhaps in the future, we're not being good stewards of what God has gifted us with to take care of others. I mean, we're blessed to be a blessing to yeah. others. Yeah. So, so I think that what really I'm going to do, to me. <laughs> that yeah, really well, spoke good. to me. I think what I'm going to do, we're going to combine the applying the scripture with this because it kind of flows together. Yeah. And it talks about, you know, I do want to highlight something in, on page 12, third paragraph. Um, Caleb writes, our relationship with our planet directly reflects our relationship with our creator. Just as we see God's beauty in the sunset, God's greatness in the mighty sea, and God's power in the torrential thunderstorm, every piece of God's creation is a piece of God. What we would say there is, is that it is an extension thereof. We're not mm -hmm. pantheist. We, we don't think that God, you know, is, is a cloud. This is how I no. explain it to my religion class. When you cut down a tree in Christian theology, you're not cutting down a piece of God. You are right, cutting right. down something that is deeply valuable to God that God created. Yes. Um, and so I got in the way I the way I illustrate this is I, me and my mother, you know, you know, mothers, sons, whatever. Yes. Like I would do something stupid that had nothing to do with her. I was just wanting to have fun. But then she would take it as, you know, my values, you know what I expect from you. You did something stupid. It hurt me. Sure. Right? And so it was it, a direct reflection upon your relationship with her or it was a rejection of what she thought was valuable. And then therefore, right. because she thought it was valuable, maybe I wasn't taking the relationship serious. We do this in like all kinds of relationships. If you're married, sure. if your spouse, you know, for one, like like your spouse doesn't like, um, you know, watching, you know, overly sexualized movies. But then somebody's like, oh, well, I'm going to watch this anyway. I mean, what else does somebody think other than you yeah. just don't respect who they are? Like if you say, hey, I don't want you doing this or whatever else, blah, blah, blah. And so that's mm -hmm. what we mean. And pretty, that's what Caleb means on that is that in this sense, the way we um, care for creation is a reflection on this good and beautiful thing that God created. Didn't yeah. work out well in Genesis 6 uh, when people weren't paying attention. Yeah. And so the reason why I want to tie this with the applying the scripture section is because uh, Caleb brings up uh, Sally McFay, which I think this is wonderful. I'll just say um, she argues convincingly. the second paragraph. She argues convincingly that most individuals have begun to act first and foremost as uh, consumers rather than caretakers. She suggests we neglect the earth as if it were a motel room rather than the home God created for us. Now, I think that is a super wonderful illustration because like yes. when it's not yours, you just don't treat it as well. No. Uh, and, and um, the big illustration is uh, it would be uh, car rentals. There are things you will do in a car that you've rented that you will not do. And you, you I mean, just even the way you drive, you're like, I can take that. <laughs> and you <laughs> never do that in your car. You look like at a sure. road. Maybe you've gone to Gatlinburg and it's a bumpy road and it looks like it could be like, like bad on the shocks. You're like, you're eh, done. Yep. You're yep. not in your car. 
Um, and again, it's a reflection of what you're saying is not my problem, right? Yes. And that's the bad that's part. That's exactly what we're saying. Right. Like we paid for this, this is ours until it's not, and they'll have to deal with it. And right. so um, when we take that same attitude with God's creation, what other, we're at the very least saying what God thinks is very, very good. We're, we're handling with, with no care. No care. Yeah. I, now, I completely agree with that. Um, so maybe we'll end then with the discussion question, um, because that ties kind of both of everything together. How do you think Jesus viewed the natural world? What do you think Jesus would do or say to those of us who, for whatever reason, are neglecting or harming creation for economic gain or due to apathy? I think this is God's creation. And Jesus viewed the natural world as a wonderful place, something that we were supposed to be co-creators in, taking care of modifying however we need to do but not using and abusing and for those of us that are neglecting and harming creation for economic gain i think we're very short-sighted yeah because short-sighted. we're we're supposed to be again going back to the garden of eden we're supposed to be working with god to create a good place and we are creating unintended consequences that that are bad for both us and God's creation around us. Yeah. yeah, I think I agree. I think like when I think of Jesus, when I think of like, when I think of Jesus, I think about the lilies in the field and I think about, yeah. I think about the Psalms, like he's the embodiment of them and how so- the Psalms uplift creation almost as, you know, again, Hebrews didn't equate creation with God but the praise of the beauty that God displays yes. in creation. And I, I could just imagine that in Jesus. Yeah. I could imagine Jesus reciting like Psalm 18 and talking about the expanses of the earth and you yeah. know, the heavens and all this jazz. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I, I imagine the natural world still today sings praises to God every oh, day, absolutely. you know, and and our us in our Western minds, we gloss over the fact that when we're sitting outside enjoying nature, that the grass, the trees, the birds, the animals are singing praises to to the creator every day. And we just we don't think about that. And I think that's really sad that we have got to that point. All right. Any parting shots? Mm. Be a good co-creator with God think you go home this week and think about am I am I co-creating with God the way that I'm supposed to or have I neglected my yes. part of the covenant we're about mm-hmm. to have a dog jump out of the grass I think oh there we go that's Bye. that's because he is praising Jesus right now yeah right <laughs> um yeah co-creation I mean that involves not and then part of creation is humanity treat humans good yeah um yeah. all right the other thing you might look up i just remembered this would be like first peter he uh, first peter chapter three has this um there's baptism to the flood uh and so y'all might want to do a little deep dive into that i would say i have a little different take maybe uh, so far as first peter where it says this water now saves you he's talking about baptism 
in a very real sense, I should have brought this up earlier. Sorry. Like there's a sense in which the flood saved the earth. Yes. By killing everybody. That's a hard way to look at it, but I mean, that's essentially, but that's the truth. So yeah, we talked about the restorative justice, but then also like the ark saved Adam and Eve. So anyway, Jesus cross resurrection through that we're, we're saved. The water cleanses the earth and the flood, just as water cleanses us from mm-hmm. baptism. Anyway, sorry. I just, that's something that if y'all wanted to in your Sunday school class, you could certainly pick up. Um, it's hard. It's a hard one though. So plan to study for a little while. Yeah. All right. Um, next week we'll get into Abraham. Yay. Woohoo! Abraham. Are we going to sing that song? Father Abraham. Father Abraham who had many sons. Had many sons. And many daughters. Sons had Father Abraham. Yeah. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.